As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Torella. And I'm your better, prettier, younger host, Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at killerqueenspodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Killer Queens Podcast. And we're on YouTube at Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge, and let's talk about some true crime. All right, welcome back to Killer Queens and part two of the Dyatlov Pass mystery. Ooh. Ooh. Spooky. Mm-hmm. Also, before we get started, just to let you know, of course, if you want bonus episodes or ad-free episodes, you can check out our Patreon. And if you want early access to or like immediate access to two-parters, like the second part, we release every week on Saturday, of course, but for two-parters, we put part two out immediately for patrons. So definitely go check it out, patreon.com slash pod, and you can hang with us and we can have a lot of extra fun together. Yes, take off your pants and let's have some fun. Oh, we won't it's know. Friends, <laughs> <laughs> it's like a Zoom, a Zoom meeting, like exactly. business up top and party on the bottom. You can be bottomless all day long if you want to. Bottomless, bottomless mimosas. Mm-hmm. Bottomless and bottomless mimosas. Exactly. Yeah. Also, I wanted to go ahead and just put a disclaimer on this case. We are from Tennessee. We are country girls. We are not going to be able to pronounce everything correctly. And we apologize for that. Yeah. Yeah. Don't come for us. We really are trying. And also, we just wanted to let everybody know. So I know that we we try to let everybody know about, you know, the Patreon and and ways that you can support the show, but we do also understand that. It's a really tough time right now for a lot of people financially. And if you feel like you want to support the show, but you don't have, you know, extra funds right now, you can like share us on social media. You can leave us a review on whatever your podcast app is that you use or a review on Facebook. There's definitely ways, you know, you can support us and all those things help. And just you listening every week absolutely helps. So we just want you to know that 
There's definitely ways that don't cost anything to support the show. And we appreciate you guys listening. We love you. Yeah. And please send us fun messages if you want to or leave comments on our Instagram or Facebook. Like we love seeing all those things. So thank you so much. Yes, we do. And I'm trying to add anybody who shares like, you know, that they're listening or whatever in their story. I'm trying to add those to our story too. So if you want to be featured in our story, you can always tag us and we'll we'll add you to ours. Instagram. Yes. Did I say that? No. Okay. That's okay. Well, okay. Let's get after it. Let's do it. All right. So where we left off last week, we just, um, the searchers were out looking for the hikers. They found the campsite. There was a lot of mysterious things left behind that people would need to survive in the cold. The tent was cut open Mm -hmm. from the inside, which is very strange. And we just found two of the bodies when we left off. So we've seen this before, this technique where knowing, like if you know you're looking for a body, if you're you know, I've seen this in water, but also in snow. They would just use ski poles and poke down to just see if they hit anything. And they ended up transitioning to what they call avalanche probes. They were longer and they just went deeper into the snow. They were 10 feet long, which is insane. Like, how deep was the snow? But kind of they, like the Bee Gees, like, how deep is your love? You know, I know. How deep is your snow? How deep is your snow? How deep <laughs> is your snow? Um, Bob will like that. I think so too. Yeah. Yeah. Not me singing it, but. No, know. but just the reference. Yeah. Sure, sure. But they said that they would stick the poles in the snow about every 50 centimeters or 20 inches. So this is pretty intense, thorough. You know, they're mm-hmm. they're going pretty close together. Oh, in doing this, if they found a body, their poles would come out with evidence that it had encountered a body, like blood, skin, hair, clothes, whatever would be on the pole. A searcher, Mikhail Sherevin, told Lucy Ash of the BBC, we approached a cedar tree and when we were 20 meters away, we saw a brown spot. It was toward the right of the trunk. And when we got closer, we saw two corpses lying there. The hands and the feet were reddish brown. Yuri and Georgi were found under a tree in a clearing about a mile away from the tent. Their bodies were about three feet from a campfire that had reportedly not burned out naturally. It was later determined that the fire had only burned for about an hour and a half before it was put out intentionally. Amazing that they could figure out just by probably the wood left how long the fire was burning. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And like, that it was put out intentionally. Mm-hmm. But I guess, yeah, the way that it's left, you would know that it if didn't just burn out. Not all the wood had been burned. Yeah. yeah. Georgi was found on his back in only an undershirt, button-up shirt, and a pair of pants that were tattered. He was wearing one sock on his left foot, which was actually burned. His body had different areas where skin was missing and bloody. And we'll get more into the injuries later because they're wild and because of like how violent and odd they were. But this led investigators and conspiracy theorists to speculate about what caused the death of the hikers. And there are many theories out there. 
Laying right beside Georgi was Yuri. Yuri was on his stomach and he was also severely underdressed for the climate. He was only wearing a button-up shirt, shorts, and a pair of torn-up pants. He was wearing socks on both feet, but they were also burned. He had bloody injuries to his face and hands that were visible on site. After finding the bodies of Yuri and Georgi, it was pretty clear to the searchers that they were on a body recovery mission for all seven remaining hikers. They followed footprints they found leading away from the clearing where they found Yuri and Georgi. They found a flashlight on the way that had long since burned out. And then about a half mile from the campsite, which was almost exactly in the middle of the path from the campsite to the clearing where Yuri and Georgi were found, the searchers found the body of Zina buried under about a half a foot of snow. Zina had been found lying on her right side and appeared to have been going in the direction of the tent as though trying to return. She was more dressed than the previous bodies, but still not adequately dressed for the climate. She was wearing a pink hat, flannel shirt, coat, leggings, ski pants, underwear, and socks on both feet. Zina had five rubles in her pocket. She also had bloody injuries and most significantly was the large abrasion on her side near her waist. Igor was found next about halfway between Zina and Yuri and Georgi, also covered in about six inches of snow, also seemingly returning to the tent based on his direction. He was on his back with his left arm around a tree branch as though he'd been holding onto it. His hands were clenched and up on his chest. His fists were the only thing that could be seen poking out of the snow at first. Oh my God. Igor was wearing a sweater, flannel button up shirt, coat, long john, ski pants, and socks that didn't match. One was cotton and one was wool. He had a watch on that was stopped at 531. I hate when socks don't match. It really bothers me. Like, I don't care if they're not the same color. They can be, you know, as long as they're the same kind of sock. But Andrew does this all the time. My husband, he'll wear like one long sock and one no show sock or like, Mm-mm. Just two completely Mm-mm. different socks, and he'll put the boys in completely different socks sometimes. And I'm like, does that not bother your feet to wear that? Like, you can feel the difference. It bothers my feet as much as it would bother my feet to, with for like a sock to be twisted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know exactly. what I mean. Yeah, like the where the seam is on the toe. Oh, I can't deal. Or like a bunched up sock. Like I, it oh, makes me yeah want to come up out of my chair. Yeah, for sure. It would be almost a full week before the searchers located the next body. The body of Rustem was found on March 5th in the path between Zena and Igor in what is described as a corpse bed. According to the book, this is created when a person is alive, when they fall in the snow, so the body heat melts the snow. This refreezes, creating a bed of ice. Rustem was the only body found in a corpse bed. This suggests that Rustem was the only one still alive when they hit the snow. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Oh, wow. I didn't think about that. That, huh. That if they, if the others had been alive, they would, because it's kind of like how their footprints were, where yeah, they created those columns. Yeah, those columns of ice. So this is like that around the entire body. But I didn't think about the others if they didn't make that, that they wouldn't have been alive when they hit the snow. That's, well, so would it have meant that they would have been dead for a little bit? Because I would think even if you, how long would it take in that climate for all of the body heat to leave your body? Well, before? and you're all, you also got to think that I think, you know, they all or some, most of them died of hypothermia. Yes, so cold. yeah, so they're already very cold. So in that climate, I would think not long at all. Mm-hmm. But and I'm sure it would take some time for the snow to melt. Right. Based on your body heat. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, so I mean, if they if they die of hypothermia, so their body heat is already much less than it should be. I mean, does that necessarily mean for sure that they weren't alive when they hit the snow? Or is it just that they were already so cold? That- yeah, so cold and like not to be morbid, but like half frozen. Yeah. I think that that's something that we can't really speculate because we're from Tennessee where the coldest it gets here is 32 degrees. And that's fucking cold. Yeah. I'm completely bundled up and you can only see my face. Exactly. So I don't know if we'll ever be able to understand what that is like because we've never been in that much snow. So definitely. Yeah. The other bodies seem to have been placed in the location after they were already dead, like we said. However, it could also be that the other bodies were also in these corpse beds, but it wasn't noted. Rustem was found lying on his stomach with his right arm bent and kind of underneath him, but his left arm was straight out under six inches of snow and again, seemingly headed back to the tent. Yet again, he was not appropriately dressed. He was found in a t-shirt, button-up shirt, a sweater, a jacket, long johns, and ski pants with four socks on each foot and one boot on the right boot. The left had been found in the tent. Rustem had more items on him, his passport, 310 rubles, which would be 7750 US in 1959. And today that would be about $681. A pen knife, a pencil, a comb, and a box of matches were all found in his pockets. He was also wearing a watch that was stopped at 845. Though they were being as diligent and thorough as possible, the searchers found nothing for the rest of March or all of April. 
They switched to the avalanche probes at this time so they could prod deeper into the snow. Finally, in May, the weather started to warm up and the snow started to melt. And this helped the searchers by showing them new clues. They found things all over the place. Alexander's knife sheath. The knife had been found back at the tent in February. They found coins, Georgi's knife, Sasha's compass, black cotton sweatpants with one leg cut off. That leg of the pants was not with the pants and a sweater that belonged to Luda that had been cut in half and the other half was not found with this half. The melting snow also revealed a trail of broken treetops, branches, and other smaller broken trees. The broken branches and trees led in a path, so the searchers followed it for another 200-ish feet from the area where Yuri and Georgi had been found. And this is where they found what's called a snow den in the official documents. So basically, that's an area where there were tree branches and broken off treetops that were laid out in a square to create like a floor. And the snow den was a 10 foot square and in the corners of the square were the missing leg of the sweatpants and the other half of Luda's cut up sweater. Other items of clothing were in the other two corners. The snow den was found on May 5th and later that day, the team would find the remaining hikers. In a large hole about 20 feet from the snow den, they found a stream and about 14 feet under the snow and in the stream, they found Luda. After carefully moving Luda's body, they found Nicholas, Sasha, and Alexander. The searchers had been forced to move Luda in order to get to the men because of how they were all positioned. Luda had been found face down in the stream, laying over a small waterfall. Her knees were bent in the like pool at the bottom of the waterfall, and she was kind of on her knees with her top top half laying on top of the waterfall. So kind of like the position you'd get into, like give a kid a bath in the tub or, you know, something. You're kind of like leaning forward. It appeared that she had scavenged the previously found bodies for their clothes. She was wearing two sweaters, a button-up shirt and stockings, but she was also wearing a pair of pants that were burned and torn up that turned out to belong to Georgi and had been cut off of him. She was also only wearing socks on her feet. On the top part of the stream, laying perpendicular to Luda with their upper bodies in the water were the remaining three hikers. They were laying side by side, but were almost on top of each other. Nicholas was the first body near Luda. He was wearing two hats, a shirt, a beat up sweater, a coat, sweatpants, wool pants, and unlike his friends, he was wearing socks and boots on both feet. He also had two watches on his left wrist. Next was Sasha. He also had two hats, a t-shirt, a long sleeve shirt, a sweater, a fleece jacket, a coat, long johns, two pair of ski pants, pair of canvas pants, two socks on his left foot, one on the right, and he was also wearing boots on both feet. Oddly, he was also clutching a pencil in his right hand and a notebook in his left, and a camera was around his neck. However, his camera had previously been found in the tent along with Igor's, Rustem's, and Georgi's. It was and is still unknown who this camera belonged to or if Sasha just had two cameras and the film was destroyed after being in the stream for months. Finally, Alexander was found wearing a t-shirt, a button-up, a sweater, a fleece jacket, and a coat with a burned sleeve, shorts, two pairs of pants, 
a pair of wool socks with one more sock on his right foot and three more on his left. Wonder how many okay, socks so they packed with them. I don't know. It seems like uh, upwards of 45. I know. There's like a lot of socks. But if we if we have like, you know, if we do get any snow at all, I definitely put like four pairs of socks on. You wear two at all times. Yeah. You are definitely layered up always and you always have your heated seats turned on. <laughs> yeah, even in the summer. So yeah, you don't play around. Yeah. So let's get into their injuries and their implications. So now that all the hikers were accounted for, the next job was to figure out what happened to them. How did all nine of these capable, strong, experienced hikers end up dead in all different locations? And how did these crazy injuries happen? Autopsies were conducted on all nine hikers, revealing injuries that only furthered the confusion and mystery in this case. So we're going to go through all the injuries suffered by the group and what could have caused them. On March 4th, the autopsies were conducted on Georgi, Yuri, Zena, and Igor. March 8th was Rustem's, and Luda, Nicholas, Sasha, and Alexander's were all performed on May 9th. Georgi, who had been found on his back, had lividity or liver mortis to match. And lividity or liver mortis is when your heart stops beating and gravity takes over, so your blood settles to the lowest point, creating what looks like bruising. Georgi, Igor, Alexander, Nicholas, and Sasha had lividity that matched the positions in which they were all found. However, Zena, Rustem, Yuri, and Luda all had lividity in places that were not consistent to the positions they were eventually found in. Hmm. And that Zen- can tell you that if they had been repositioned after Yeah, their- they've been moved. Mm-hmm. Zena was found on her right side, but lividity was on her back. Rustem and Yuri were found on their stomachs, but had lividity on their backs. And Luda was found on her stomach, kind of, but her lividity was found on her back as well. Hmm. This inconsistency with what the book calls cadaver spots suggests at least those four bodies were moved after they were already dead. Interesting. Yeah. It's like, I feel like the, the only thing that you can say about this is curiouser and curiouser. Yeah, and it really is one of those cases that like every bit of additional information you get actually just makes it more confusing. Like, yeah, it's so wild. I'm going to go ahead and I don't think that it's going to be a shock at this point. I don't like this kind of case. We don't know what happened to them. So we're just kind of like, well... Could be, be this, this or could no, I want black and white. I don't want this gray shit. I don't want to like, I don't want to investigate. I just want the facts. Yeah. Well, sorry, Charlie. Yeah, why'd you make me do those? <laughs> As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. In a 1953 book written by M.I. Rayski, Forensic Medicine, and this was kind of like the forensic Bible at the time, He discusses that in frozen cadavers, liver mortis changes color when the body is warmed. It can change from purple to light red and then darken again. And he writes that the same thing happened with frostbite erythema when a body is frozen and then taken to a warm room. Reisky says, it's not surprising that the medical examiner, Basrojdini, thought that he sees liver mortis spots. This was just the beginning of the strange findings and the list of injuries to each hiker was extensive. Most of the injuries could be explained by being exposed to the elements like cuts and scrapes to noses, bloody noses, swollen and bloody lips, cuts and scrapes to other parts of the body and small bruises. But there were injuries that were more inexplicable. Chunks of skin missing from Zena, Rustem, Georgi, Alexander, and Luda. Georgi had a one inch long and one-fifth inch wide strip of skin missing from his right middle finger that was later found in his mouth. Yeesh. Oh, geez. It was suggested that this could either be because he was trying not to scream or because he was trying to keep himself awake or that he was trying to wake up his hands that were dead cold. That's so sad. It's like, it's just so, it's, it makes it so real. It's so surreal. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I cannot imagine being in that kind of situation and having to do any one of those things. Right. Yeah. It's, and you know, you know what's coming. I mean, and you know what's happening to your body. And like, you get to a point where you can't do anything about it, but you're trying everything you can to survive. It's just so sad. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Alexander and Luda had bone exposed in the places their skin was missing on their heads. It was so deep. Zena's hands had fingernail-shaped cuts on the back. This would indicate that she was trying to possibly free herself from restraints or she was digging her nails into her hands. Rustem and Nicholas both had skull fractures, both to the temple as though they'd been hit in the temples with a blunt object. Rustem's skull fracture was noted to have probably caused him to become disoriented and probably lose coordination. Rustem, Georgi, and Nicholas all had bleeding on the brain. Rustem and Nicholas had had skull fractures to explain this, but Georgi's bleeding was probably caused by a blow to the head that did not fracture his skull. Rustem had blood around his right kidney. This could be caused by being kicked or hit really hard on the side. And Igor's ankles had restraint-like indents on them. Georgi had third-degree burns on all the fingers of his left hand and entire left leg. Third-degree burns don't happen quickly, and generally a person will retreat from whatever is burning them, if possible, long before this degree of burn is obtained. Third degree goes down to the muscle and chars the skin. Alexander had a broken nose. Alexander, Sasha, and Luda's nostrils were described as pinched shut as though someone was holding them closed or they had a clothespin pinching them shut. 
this is wild. Like, what happened? I know, insane. Like, it, there's so many things that point to seemingly another person being there. Yeah. But it's such a remote area and it would take so long to, like, I don't know. It just, it, it's, it seems also like unlikely that somebody else would be there. Yeah. I don't know. It just doesn't make any sense unless it was like some tall grays that came down from space. Oh my God. It could be. Right. Oof. Scary stuff. I know that shit scares me. Me too. Cause I believe it's true. I do too. And I, I just take comfort in the fact that I'm so dumb. They probably don't want me. Luda and Alexander both had their hyoid bones crushed. Uh, I know exactly what a hyoid bone is because of Jeffrey Epstein. Ugh. Yeah. I know. But remember? No, actually. It's the bone in your I know what it is, but why Jeffrey When you're being hanged? Yeah. Oh, because his was broken? His hyoid... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because the hyoid bone, it often is a sign of like asphyxiation or strangulation because when mm-hmm. when you're putting pressure on that area that teeny little bone back there will break. Mhm. Sasha and Luda's ribs were broken in multiple places. This would be noted as related to their main cause of death. Four of Luda's ribs were broken in two places, each on the right side of her rib cage and six ribs were broken once on the left side. Bleeding indicated that she was alive when this happened. Oh, God, that's awful. Terrible. Luda's broken ribs would puncture her heart, creating a one-inch hole. And this also occurred while she was alive. Golly. Five of Sasha's ribs on the right side of his rib cage were broken in two places each and caused internal bleeding. And there were indications that his ribs were broken while he was alive. Georgi, Yuri, and Igor all had U-shaped bruises that look as though they were hit with the butt of a rifle or something of a similar shape and size. Everyone except Zena had pulmonary edema, fluid in their lungs that is frequently caused by being strangled or serious pressure being placed on the chest while they're alive. Hmm. Rustem, Alexander, Yuri, Sasha, and Luda all had hemothoraces, which is blood in their chest cavities. Luda had 1.5 quarts of blood in her chest. Sasha and Yuri had a quart. And it wasn't noted how much was in Rustem's chest or Alexander's. It's a lot of blood. That's a lot of blood. And why would they not note how much was in Rustem and Alexander's? Isn't that important? You would, I mean, I don't know. They found it important enough to note it in the others. I don't know. Right, yeah. Nicholas's autopsy noted that he had a dry heart, which was explained as a sudden deprivation of circulating blood. Blood flow to the heart cut off abruptly, which caused damage to the heart. Luda's tongue and the diaphragm of her mouth were missing. Oh my God. I know. Nicholas had an open wound on the left side of his mouth that was deep enough and open enough to expose his teeth and gums. Jeez. Jeez, what is the deal here? And that was concluded that that was done while he was still alive. Mm -hmm. Nicholas also had a bruise in front and under his right shoulder. It was noted that this is an unusual injury that's often caused by the arm being forcefully twisted up and behind the back Mm -hmm. as when being restrained. Not that that's 
what happened, but it's an example of what could have caused that injury. Sasha and Ludo were also missing their eyes, not from an animal feeding either. During a microscopic examination of both Sasha's and Luda's wounds, it was discovered that there was bleeding in the wounds and the eye sockets, meaning that they were alive when their eyes were removed. Oh my God. Good God. These poor people. Like, freezing to death is horrific enough. But I feel like, and based on what we know had actually happened when they were alive, that might be preferable. I know. Like, they're, it seems like they were tortured. Yeah, but why? It just doesn't make any sense. I don't know, and I have a feeling like we're never gonna fucking know. Yeah, we're never gonna know. (sighs) During the autopsies, all of the hikers were checked for alcohol in their systems and sexual assault. None of them exhibited either. It was noted that the injuries to the last four hikers, Luda, Nicholas, Sasha, and Alexander, were were like ones that would be obtained if a person was hit by a car. It was noted that Luda could have been alive for 10 to 20 minutes after she was injured, and Nicholas could have lived for two to three hours with his injuries. Another strange thing, this is really weird, was the presence of radiation. The clothes of the last four were all tested, and despite having been partly submerged in water for the last few months, items of their clothing still tested positive. The waistband of Alexander's sweater and the bottom part of his ski pants, the bottom part of Nicholas's wool pants, Sasha's sheepskin fur-lined vest, Luda's jacket that was wrapped around her leg, her torn pants, and both of her sweaters all tested positive for beta particles that were double the normal range of radiation. All the clothing items were placed under running water for three hours and their radiation measurements dropped by half. It's important to remember that these four hikers had been in water for weeks or months already. So it's unknown what the original levels were. But if they dropped in half in just a couple of hours, then it seems like those numbers had to have been through the roof. Yeah, exactly. This finding would end up causing numerous conspiracy theories. But it could also be that since these items belonged to Alexander and Nicholas originally, they could have been exposed to radiation at their jobs. While the causes of death for Zina, Rustem, Igor, Georgi, Yuri, and Alexander were listed as freezing, violent, and accident, the causes of death for Nicholas, Sasha, and Luda were all more horrific. Nicholas's cause of death was listed as crushed fracture in the region of the chest and base of skull with profuse hemorrhage to the brain membranes and on the brain, violent. Sasha's cause of death was noted as multiple rib fractures and internal bleeding in the pleural cavity, violent. And Luda's was extensive hemorrhage, multiple bilateral fractures of the ribs, pierced the heart, and internal bleeding into the thoracic cavity, violent. Instead of revealing what happened to the hikers, their autopsies created more confusion and more speculation. I mean, I feel like I have a hundred more questions now. It's, yeah, you're exactly right. It's one of those things where it's like, the more you know, the less you know. I don't know. It's just too, it's it's too much. I know. How did this happen? So why don't we get into the theories? Yeah, because that's really all we have. So yeah, which is just a treat. (laughs) So 
The death of the Dyatlov group is mind-boggling to this day. Again, these were nine young, fit, athletic, experienced, responsible hikers. They weren't drinking or doing drugs. They did hikes like this all the time, and yet all nine abandoned their tent in negative temperatures in feet of snow with barely any clothes, and most without shoes. Knowing what we know about the hikers and the conditions in which they were found, people began to come up with theories to explain what could have possibly happened. And boy, have people come up with the theories. There are almost 100 different theories about what happened, but obviously we don't have the time to do address all of them. Oh no, we're which... doing all of them. Oh, are we doing all of them? Yep, all 100. Get settled in, guys. Buckle up, buttercup, it's happening. <laughs> so why don't we just talk about a few right now mm-hmm. to try to figure this out? So some of the theories are that either Sasha or Nicholas were the ones to step out of the tent to urinate since they had they were better dressed of the crew. And that's also there's also a thought that maybe these two went to build the storage and were on their way back to the tent when whatever happened to them happened. Again, explaining why they were the better dressed of all of them. Hmm. So theory one is the Mansi. Valerie Onyemov lives there now and his dad was part of the search team looking for the Dyatlov group. Valerie told the BBC writer, Soviet investigators were convinced we Mansi must have killed them. So many people here were arrested and a woman from another village who is no longer with us used to say that the secret police tortured them. I don't know if that is true, but they were certainly interrogated for weeks. But the investigators didn't go down this path for long because as we said, the Mansi were not known to hurt hikers and were generally peaceful people. Plus investigators were still looking for the final four hikers at this time and were like, actually, since you guys know the area, we're sorry that we accused you, but could you help us? Yeah, like let's um, let's just forget about all that. Let's just like have a do-over. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, sorry. The BBC article mentions a 2015 book that still thinks the Mansi had something to do with the hiker's death. It suggests that there were some Mansi hunters who were tripping balls on the mushrooms they use in rituals when they ran into the hikers on Mansi land. But this land was not sacred. And Valerie told the journalist that Mount or Tortor ooh. Or tort, how do you say it? Or tort, or torten, or torten. <laughs> yeah, <I'm> like, <laughs> trying to add seventeen syllables to that. Or torturo, <laughs> or torten doesn't actually mean don't go there. Unlike everyone else, he says it means mountain with swirling winds. Is he the only person that says that? Because literally everywhere else it says it means don't go there. And they said it means that because it's not worthwhile for hunting. No idea. But since he's the only one who says it, I trust it. (laughs) Yeah. The Mansi people knew the area and were absolutely capable of inflicting these injuries, but they never had before. And the ground the group was on wasn't sacred. But also, if the Mansi were to kill these hikers, wouldn't they take their supplies? Like they live in Siberia and things are rough. Why wouldn't they have used things like the knife and I don't know, boots, like all of these right. things they could have totally used? Yeah, for sure. The compass, I don't know. So Valerie and his now 80-something-year-old mother, Sanka, suggest that there is a technological explanation. Mm. All right, theory number two. 
fireballs in the sky scare the bejesus out of the hikers and they peace the fuck out, essentially. That's the that's the gist. I also want to go ahead. I know, sorry. Sanka, what does that make you think of? Cool Runnings. Oh, yeah. Sanka, you dead? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jamaica, we have a bobsled team. Got the Wanda Reese and the one junior. Got Yul Brenna and Sanka. <laughs> this little egg. <laughs> Sanka tells the journalist about what she saw one night in February 1959. Quote, we were coming back from the forest and we could see the village ahead of us. This bright burning object appeared. It was wider at the front and narrower at the back with a tail and there were sparks flying off of it. This is actually a popular theory with many people who claim to have witnessed this. The other hiking group, Blinov, also reported seeing fireballs in the sky while they were out hiking at the same time. The main thinking with this fireball in the sky theory is that the fireballs, comets, or whatever they were, scared the crap out of the hikers and they thought they were going to get hit. So they evacuated their tent in a rush and ran into the woods. And then they unfortunately froze to death. But it doesn't explain any of the injuries that they sustained. No, it does not. Yeah. However, if this fireball hit the earth, wouldn't there be melted snow marks or something to suggest that this had been the thing that caused the hikers to abort mission from their tent and take off into the woods half clothed? And why wouldn't the hikers return to their tent once they were like, oh, okay, it's just a comment. Like, it's not going to hit us. We can go to sleep. Yeah, false alarm. Yeah. This also doesn't explain the death of the hikers and their injuries. Sure, they froze, but Luda's eyes and tongue were missing. Sasha's eyes were missing. Both of them had ribs that had been crushed enough to cause them to die. How do injuries like this occur from fleeing from fireballs in the sky? The third theory is a Yeti attack. Okay. Okay, Dan. The discovery, <laughs> I know, it's hard to take this one seriously. There are people in the world that believe in the Loch Ness Monster and the Yeti and Bigfoot, all the things. So let's just visit this one and try attempt to take it seriously. I don't know. Okay. The Discovery Channel released a documentary in 2014 called Russian Yeti, The Killer Lives that goes into this theory. It is a two-hour special that basically says that the hikers came upon a Yeti that they even caught on camera and attacked them. So did they find the pictures of this Yeti or did the Yeti take the camera so nobody would know that he was there? Well, that's just silly because if the Yeti took the camera, how's he going to get those pictures developed? He's not, but maybe he's up there taking selfies. Maybe. Maybe he's got a dark room all by himself. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Too bad they didn't have like the bug bomb that Rachel and Monica used to fog Fog Danny. his Yeti ass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we fogged a Yeti. <laughs> okay, so that's about as far as we're going to go into the Yeti thing. Yeah. Theory number... I think that's actually further than we should have gone. I know, yeah. Theory number four is Avalanche. It's also interesting that somebody made a documentary about it that's fucking two hours long. Well, there's a documentary about mermaids that came on the Discovery Channel as well. So the Discovery Channel pisses me off sometimes because I thought the Discovery Channel was supposed to put out scientific stuff. Yeah, not that's okay. Yes, 
because if you're not going to put out scientific stuff and it's going to be science fiction, guess what? There's a whole channel for that. It's called the sci-fi channel. Yeah, exactly. Because like a few years ago, several years ago now, they put out this thing on the Megalodon which, you know, used to During exist. Shark Week. During Shark Week. And it like they made it look really fucking cool. And so we watched it and they were acting like there were still megalodons out there that they weren't all extinct. And like that, off the coast of Cape Town in yeah. South Africa. And they had like this video of people like on a boat and their boat gets like eaten in one bite, basically. And they made a big deal about it and we were like, holy shit, what the hell? And then we looked it up and it was like, oh no, that was just like sci-fi. It was just like, what if they were still alive? I'm like, but that's not how you... They presented the whole thing as like this... Uh, they made it a documentary and they made it like this expert was going and doing all this research and he was t- trying to tag them and like all this stuff. It In no way did it look like this isn't real. And they were just like, made it sound like we thought they were extinct, but they've been, you know, so deep in the ocean. We just didn't know they were there. It's just so, I don't know. That's, that is irresponsible journalism. I feel like it is. I don't enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. This injustice will not stand. Discovery Channel, get your shit together. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Theory number four is the avalanche. So, It's possible, or one of the theories is that the group heard an avalanche coming, so they busted out of the tent, or that the tent collapsed under the snow, so they had to cut their way out, and in their haste to get free, they didn't take the time to dress appropriately. So this led them to being stranded in the mountains without enough clothes and without supplies. One problem with this theory is that nothing in the tent was crushed, or even easily crushable things like crackers were still intact. It's also difficult to reconcile that the group of hikers knew they had a storage spot and they didn't go there. Nothing had been touched in the storage area as far as we know. Another problem with this theory is that there was no evidence of an avalanche having occurred. In fact, according to some sources, there had never been an avalanche recorded in this area at all. So that's kind of out the window. Yeah. Theory number five infrasound, and a Carmen Vortex street. (laughs) Infrasound is a vibration in the air so low we can't hear it, but we can feel the effects. According to studies, this can cause sleeplessness, shortness of breath, and extreme dread. Carmen Vortex street is a weather phenomenon that is very rare, but does happen. Why does it sound like the street right outside of my neighborhood. (laughs) Carmen Vortex Street. Yeah, so weird. Yeah, it's when a wind vortex or many vortices vortices Mm -hmm. go over islands or mountains or objects. And in smaller instances, it's what causes that noise or singing when the air whips a car antenna or other small, or another small example would be like that noise when power lines phone lines are whipping in the wind. The theory suggests that the Carmen Vortex Street was caused by the winds in the mountains coming down into the inverted dome of the Mount or Torton and caused a bunch of tornado-type winds that were insanely loud and created the infrasound 
culminating in a perfect storm. This phenomenon made the hikers claustrophobic and irrational. It would have made them feel horrible and they would have tried to escape it, thus ending up half dressed in the Siberian woods and dying. If that did happen though, we know that the, what was their name, Blinov group? Yeah. Was, I mean, I guess not super close by, but would they would not have experienced, well? yeah, when they've experienced the same phenomenon? I just feel like almost all of these phenomenons or theories are really far-fetched. Yeah. But you have to try to figure out, you have to try to understand what exactly happened. And I'm not sure that we ever can, but I understand the the reason and the meaning for theories. But most of these, I'm like, why are we wasting time on this? Yeah. Yeah, because it just doesn't, it doesn't add up. I mean, yeah, like you said, you got to look into all the possibilities, but I'm sorry, I just don't believe that a Yeti attacked them and took all of the evidence. Um, And the fact that it doesn't seem like there's ever been an avalanche. And again, if there was an avalanche, would that other group not have heard it or something like, I mean, I don't know. Again, I don't know how close they were, but they saw these alleged fireballs that night. So just seems like, you know, if there was this huge storm that was crazy and the winds were howling and all this stuff that they would have heard some of that too. Yeah, because they were miles away, but I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Theory six is the military. Theories about the KGB, CIA, and other military involvement have stated that Sasha, Alexander, and Georgi were in the KGB and were on a mission to find undercover CIA agents, deliver some radioactive samples, and get pictures of the American CIA agents, or that at least one of the nine hikers were hired by the KGB to deliver radioactive material or phony radioactive material. Basically, This theory suggests that one or more members of the hike were on some kind of secret mission, something went wrong, and the CIA agents discovered that the hikers were KGB. Then the CIA agents attacked the group, brutally beating, torturing, and killing them. Some of the evidence that backs up this theory would be the radiation readings on some of the hikers' clothing, Sasha's extra camera, And Sasha also had a military background and tattoos that have never been translated successfully. Also, some of the members actually worked at plants. Rustem, Alexander, and Georgi had all worked at laboratories before attending UPI. This could work for or against the theory. So the four would be that they had easy access to radioactive materials. Against would be that they worked in these plants and laboratories and thus were exposed to radioactive material that got in their clothes just in the day-to-day grind. So it could just mean regular exposure. Under this theory is the idea that the group stumbled upon military testing and the Soviet soldier tortured and killed them to keep them silent. So there's... We'll post it. There's an actual picture that was found on Nicholas's camera. It shows like a dark figure kind of off in the distance, a person or I don't know, something. People have thought it could be a Yeti. 
or it could be like a CIA, KGB, or military person. It's also been proposed that this human-like figure could have been an escaped convict, a hunter the group ran into, et cetera, et cetera, just some other person that they came into contact with. But again, if they came into contact with just one person, like say it was an escaped convict, like first of all, do we have an escaped convict in the area at that time? That should be pretty easy to find out. But also there's nine of them. Like, and if there's one of these, like couldn't they have overpowered them? Yeah. Again, just more and more and more questions. Yes. In the end, however, the group died. They were gone and their families were all grieving. By May 28th, Russian officials closed the case on the nine hikers. Lead investigator Lynn Ivanov, also titled junior counselor and justice and criminal prosecutor of Sverdlovsk region, stated the cause of death was an unknown compelling force, which the hikers were unable to overcome. Well, that's helpful. Yeah. Like, yeah, we know that, dude. Okay, so here's another theory. And I actually, I agree with, I don't know. I think a lot of stuff points to this theory, I guess. This is a theory that was proposed in the Unsolved Mysteries, the Dyatlov Pass case. It's not like Robert Stack Unsolved Mysteries. This is a, I think it's a YouTube channel. They might have a podcast. I don't know. And, you know, as we've researched, I I think this is kind of where Eileen and Sloan leans this way too, she says. Who's Eileen? (laughs) I was like, did I say Eileen? Yep. Yeah, I sure did. (laughs) Pick a lane. Who's Elaine? (laughs) Exactly. The group had settled in for the night and they were getting comfortable and ready for dinner. They had the stove on for warmth and had removed some of their outer clothing and shoes. Perhaps Sasha and Nicholas went off to set up the storage site, so they were still wearing their shoes and were still more thoroughly dressed, explaining their shoes and more heavy clothing. Then something causes the stove to start smoking or maybe cause a fire. Georgi was the one closest to the stove or messing with the stove maybe in an ember or possibly a burst of flames caught his clothes on fire and he got burned. Probably they put him out, but the stove was still smoking. The tent by this point would be filling up with smoke. It's making it more difficult to breathe. It's making it very difficult to see. So they try to vent the tent by poking holes, but it's not working. So they ended up cutting their way out in a panic. So that would explain why there's third degree burns. They Several of them had burned clothing in different places and they had small marks and then the big cut like in the tent. Once they're out, they can take a breath and calm down and maybe the tent is still smoking and they think it's on fire. So they decide to try and find shelter or a village or something nearby explaining why the footprints seem more calm than scrambling. And then that would also explain why they don't go back in for more clothes and their boots and stuff because they think it's all on fire. They head toward the forest and when they get to the clearing in the cedar, they decide to attempt to make a campfire 
that the trees and branches are too wet, explaining the missing branches on the trees. It's at this point they realize that there's no way they can keep this up much longer. Perhaps Zena, Rustem, and Igor head back to the tent to see if they can salvage anything that could help the whole team. But it's too cold and they're barely dressed. They collapse one at a time, each trying to get a little further. Their friends have been gone a while and Yuri and Georgi eventually succumb to the cold. The remaining four take the clothes from them and decide they have to try to find something or someone. They set off and possibly created the snow den in an attempt to take a break. And by now, they'd be seriously struggling and would probably need a break sooner than usual. Possibly while walking or creating the snow den, the final four trigger a small avalanche that either takes them out or collapses under their feet. They fall the three meters to the ravine, causing them to have severe injuries from the fall and hitting the rocks. It's possible that Luda and Sasha's heads hit hard enough to knock their eyes out. Yuck. That sounds awful. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, it sounds horrible. Because they're in running water for an extended period, their eyes detach and float away. Ugh. Luda was found with her mouth open. Perhaps her tongue being gone was actually just from decomposition? Possibly? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think the fire makes a lot of sense, though, because otherwise... It's very difficult to explain a lot of the other, like the fact that there was burning. Why would they cut themselves out of their tent? Like, it seems like there had to have been some kind of an emergency that they needed to get out and not go back for their clothes. And a lot of the clothes that they were wearing were burned. Like the sock was burned, the pants were burned. Like it does make sense. Right. And, And I mean, you've got this stove you're using for heat in a small enclosed area. I mean, it's two tents sewn together, but still, I mean, it's it's definitely possible that, mm-hmm. you know, it could it could have some problems or catch fire. Absolutely. Nothing's outside of the realm of possibility. And I think that that theory is a lot more believable than, let's say, oh, I don't know, a Yeti. Yeah, exactly. So we do have an update. On August 31st, 2018, the court decided that they would not reopen the Dyatlov Pass case stating, The study of the case materials revealed that the most likely reason for the death of the hikers could be a confluence of adverse circumstances and the violation of safety rules in difficult conditions of mountainous terrain. Panic among the people could have occurred due to an avalanche and snow falling on the tent. The death of all nine people occurred from frostbite and injuries caused by falling from height. There is no data supporting the presence of man-made factors associated with the death of the hikers in the case. The case materials indicate that the death of the people from an attack by unknown persons, animals, or conflicts within the group were ruled out. Given the above, there are no grounds for resuming the preliminary investigation. On February 4th, 2019, 40 years after the hikers disappeared, it was announced that the case was being reopened. Wow. I disagree with the 2018 ruling. I mean, not the, not the, I guess not reopening the case, it's whatever. There are things that don't, you can't explain everything by just an avalanche. <laughs> I don't know. Right, yeah. And there's things that you can't rule out because you don't, you just don't know. Like, yeah. 
On March 15, 2019, the prosecutor's office went on the same expedition in order to test the only three theories that they were willing to consider, an avalanche, snow slab, or hurricane. On July 11, 2020, it was finally announced by Andrei Kurikov that the hikers all died as the result of an avalanche. However, in August, the new prosecutor general in Russia, Igor Krasnov, reprimanded Kurikov, saying that the investigation was warned of incomplete official compliance. The DiatlovPass.com site says that this is the maximum possible punishment before dismissal. This case may never be satisfactorily solved. Sorry, Tori. But Russia has officially closed the case for good and we're just left with the theories. Well, I'm glad that at least one theory makes the most sense to me. And I guess that's what I have to live with. Yeah, it's it's difficult. It keeps me up at night, not because of the excitement of solving it. It keeps me up at night with my hate fire burning. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that can that can be healthy, you know, discomfort makes you uh make changes, right? Yes, I guess, but still <laughs> shut up and I don't want to talk to anybody for about an hour. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, how about you guys let us know what you think? Was it a yeti? Yeah. I mean, yeah, let us know and we'll post that picture too so you can see that image and you can find images of like how their bodies were found and all those things online. We're not going to post that, but um, we'll definitely post um, some pictures of the hikers alive and then in this possible Yeti figure. I, I don't think it looks like a soldier in any way, Mm-mm. but I don't know. But yeah, let us know what you guys think. You can um, post on the Instagram or send us a message or whatever. And uh, we'd love to hear your theories on it. Thank you so much for listening and we will catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye. All right, you guys, before we head out for the day, I guess for the week, we have Mm -hmm. some shout outs for new patrons. Yay. Hey, girl, thanks to Joanne H., Teresa P., Christy O., Caitlin H., Justine, Emily G., Katie C., Christian G., Fiona A., Justice H., Erica M., Marie Alaska J., Taylor B., Danielle M., Chelsea N., Michelle H., Audrey C., Maria E., Brooke T., Sarah, April M., Melanie F., and Taryn. Thank you guys so much. We love you. Thank you. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening, and we will meet you back here next week. Bye! The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloane Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at KillerQueensPodcast.com for merch and other info about the show.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.